And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn to the book of Ruth. We'll be starting a new series today through the book of Ruth. We're hoping to take the next four weeks and take one chapter per week as we go through this wonderful book. I thought after taking two and a half years to get through the Gospel of Luke, I thought we would pick something I could get through maybe a little bit quicker, uh, the book of Ruth. In fact, the most common question I have been asked is, and how long will this series take? Uh, (laughs) It's the book of Ruth. This is a wonderful passage and a wonderful book. I'm very, very excited to be going through it with you together. So what we're going to do is I am going to read uh, the... uh, First few verses, and then we're going to kind of go through it chap- uh, bit by bit as we go through the service today. So listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Eliamech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Chilion. Chilion excuse me. They were Ephaphathites of Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malhan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and pray and ask for his blessing on our text today. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us, this wonderful book. It's a beautiful picture of love. Lord, I pray that as we listen to it, that we would be reminded of your love for us and that we would worship you well. May this also prepare our hearts this morning for our uh, wedding shower this afternoon. Lord, we pray for Georgia. She is on, uh, on she journeys towards love and marriage herself. Ask that this would be a blessing to her, and that we would be a blessing even as we look at this text today. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, the book of Ruth. It's worth asking whenever we're coming into a new study, a new chapter, a new book, we ask, why is this book here? Why do we have the book of Ruth? What is this about? Well, there's a lot of options that we could say as to what this book is about. We could say, well, this is a love story. It's a love story between a woman named Ruth and her husband, Boaz. And this is a beautiful story of them two coming together. Is that what this is about? Well, I mean, yes, that happens in this story. But that's not really what the book of Ruth is about. Indeed, we do find out a lot about love or loving kindness, as it's often translated in English Bibles, this, the, translating the, the Hebrew word hesed, a, a long-suffering covenantal love. 
And we will see this not only between Ruth and Boaz, but we'll see this between Ruth and Naomi, as we'll see in our passage today. And we'll also see this between God and Naomi, which can be somewhat striking, having just read these first five verses. So, yes, it is a story of love, a story of hesed, but that's not what Ruth is fully about. We could take the, uh, this thing and say, it's like, well, who, who is this story about? Well, there's, there's three characters here in this story that take center stage, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And it's actually surprisingly difficult to know who the main character is amongst those three. Commentators point out that the book of Ruth is about 1,200 words long. Half of those words are direct speech from the characters. It's what moves the story along. And Ruth actually has the minority. She doesn't speak most of the words that are here in this book, despite the book being named after her. So it's difficult to know who this main character is, so it's hard to know exactly who this story is about. In fact, the most crucial character just comes at the very end of our book. And we'll see that is when, when we get there. So it's not really a story about three people or even one person in, in particular. We could also say and take the Presbyterian answer and say, well, this is a story of providence. God's sovereignty in all things just gives goosebumps around every Presbyterian. We talk about providence. And yes, the Lord is ruling in all these areas that we see in this book. Even those times where Ruth happened to go into a particular field and happened to arrive at particular points in the harvesting season. Yes, the Lord is involved in all of these details. But it's not really a story about that either. So what is this story about? Well, I would argue that this story is ultimately a story of Christ and how we have him. Ruth is part, as the only other time in which Ruth is mentioned, is in Matthew. And she is part of the genealogy of Christ. And this is a story of how Christ comes to be. And as what we'll see in that crucial character that I mentioned earlier, they, way at the end of chapter 4, is the fact that she is the great-grandmother of David the king. So this is a very crucial story. From Genesis on, we have been waiting for the promised one, the Messiah, the one who's going to set all things right. And as we look back, we know that he works through his servant, David, the king of Israel. Well, how did this happen? Because as we see here in these first five verses that we've just read, that line of Messiahship is in danger. Elimelech is from the tribe of Judah. And now him and his two sons are gone. How is the king going to be born? Not just King David, but Christ as well. That's what this story is about. But how did this story come about? Why was it written? And who wrote it? We actually don't know who wrote this book. We may think because it was titled Ruth that Ruth wrote it, but she, she did not write this book. We don't know who wrote it. Traditionally, it has been said that Samuel, the prophet, was the one that wrote the book of Ruth, giving an explanation as to how David became king. The problem was Samuel died before David became king, so it's hard for him to explain how that came to be about. So it probably wasn't Samuel. It was also thought that perhaps it was Solomon that wrote this book, 
in the uh, Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, Ruth comes after Proverbs and before the Song of Solomon. And we know that Solomon wrote those two, so it was assumed that perhaps Solomon wrote this one as well, giving an explanation as to how his father came to be king. But ultimately, we don't know, because it doesn't say. So that's all I'll say about that. We don't know who wrote it. Ultimately, God wrote it, so that's, that's good enough for us. But there is a particular historical reason for why this was written. And one thing that we'll note, and the story notes many times, you'll notice that the story emphasizes that this is Ruth the Moabite. Now, for us who are not familiar with ancient politics, the word Moab or Moabite doesn't tend to strike us in any particular way. But this nationality, her being from Moab, is a critical part of this story. So we're going to take a very fast look at who the Moabites were and why it is that this story has been written. The Moabites came out of, we first see them mentioned in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, in, starting in verse 34, this tells the story of Lot and his daughters. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people, and Lot was his nephew, his brother's son. And the Moabites have a rather inauspicious beginning, that it is born from incest. When Lot was forced to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah because it was destroyed, and his wife was judged and killed in the process, they realized that, there were, that his father was not going to have any heirs. So his two daughters got him drunk, laid with him, and bore sons to Lot. They became the Moabites and the Ammonites. And that's what we see there in verse 37 and 38. So there's where we begin. Inauspicious start. And unfortunately, things didn't tend to go much better for the Moabites as they went along. As we see in Numbers 22, verses 1 through 7, the Moabites continued to expand. They became their own country. And when the Israelites had journeyed out of Egypt and were ready to go to the promised land, the Moabites were afraid of them. And they said, well, we can't beat them with arms. We can't beat them with our swords so we'll try to beat them on the spiritual plane. And they hired a prophet. His name was Balak to try to curse them. And it's, it's a rather humorous story. It goes on for a few chapters of Balak trying to curse these people. But all he can do is repeat what God tells him to say. So all he can do is bless them. But because they tried to curse Israel, God curses the Moabites. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. If you remember the promise that God gave to Abraham, the ones who bless you, I will bless, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And the Moabites have been placed under that curse. And we see, and I know we're going quickly because we have a lot to cover, but in Deuteronomy chapter 23, we see some of those results. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, there is given a list of those that are not allowed 
into the tabernacle of God. Note what it says there in Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from from Mesopotamia, to curse you. So now this introduces to us a problem. David, as the king, needs to go and worship at the temple of the Lord. But he's got Moabite blood in his veins. And she's only three generations back. This says ten. How is it that the King David is to be legitimate if he is of the line of, of the Moabites? Well, that's what we're seeking to answer here. That's why this book was written. And that's what we will discover as we go through this book. Why is it that the great-grandson Ruth gets to go into the temple? Well, we'll see that as we go. This is showing us as to what David's lineage was and ultimately who Ruth is. Ruth is a very special character. She is unlike what was expected of the Moabites. Far from not bringing and providing bread and far from cursing God's people, she was a beautiful exception and that she would work in the fields to provide for her mother-in-law bread. And indeed, instead of cursing those people, she made them her own. And that's what we're going to see. It's also interesting, depending on where it is that this book has been placed, we have it in our copies we're following after the the Greek Old Testament, which is why our order of the Old Testament books is the way that they are, and it has been arranged historically, or between Judges and 1 Samuel, between the, the time when there was no kings to the time of the kings, and how we got there as Ruth. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's right after Proverbs, right after Proverbs 31, an explanation, a demonstration of what a Proverbs 31 woman looks like. So let's dive in with this introduction in mind. Let's dive into this book in chapter one. I have for you our two points, which you'll see in your outline. Point number one is that hard times do not stop God's promises. Hard times don't stop God's promises. And number two, that trials are servants of God. That's what we'll look at here. Here in chapter 1, verse 1, we are given the historical setting for this book of Ruth. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you have read the book of Judges lately, you will will remember that this was a time of absolute chaos in Israel. Seemed like every other generation, they were falling into some sort of slavery or exile or some sort of horrific sin, as we can see from its sordid pages. This was a time of lawlessness. In fact, one of the last verses of the book of Judges saying that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No standard. Moral anarchy. This is the time when our story is taking place. And here we note that there is a famine 
in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means. And there has been speculation as to whether or not this is because Israel has sinned, so God has caused a famine in the land. That's possible. There's biblical precedent for it, but the narrator of Ruth doesn't specify for us. It just tells us that there was a famine. So this family is going to journey, it's just to, to sojourn into the land of Moab, or the fields of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Some also continue to speculate, was Elimelech and Naomi and his family, are they sinning by doing this? They're leaving the land of promise to go into a land that's already not given them food before. Are they showing a distrust in God? Well, there's biblical precedence for both ways of looking at it. There were times in which God had told the patriarchs of Israel to remain in the land even though there was famine and to trust him for the results. At other times, like with Abraham himself, when they were told there's a famine in the land, you're going to need to leave in order to be able to provide food for yourself. We saw that with um, uh, Israel's journey into Egypt, something that God had blessed in their journey to find food. And again, the narrator of Ruth does not comment on whether or not this was a sinful thing for them to do, to leave the land. Just tells us that he did. And he tells us that they go into Moab. There's, the word that they use here is that they're sojourning. They're not going to stay there permanently, just going to be passing through. But then you'll see as we go on, the stay increases. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there, staying there for a longer period of time. And then we see in verse 3, despite trying to flee famine, death finds its way into Naomi's family. And Elimelech dies. But he has two sons. And this would be salvation for the wife in ancient Israel who would need her husband for economic provisions. But at least she has her sons. And she has two of them. So it's very, very likely from a statistical standpoint that she will be well taken care of. And in fact, these two sons take on Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And they live there for 10 years, there for a decade. But we'll notice that there's something missing here in these 10 years. Neither of these sons have any children. Ruth and Orpah are barren. And to compound this, both of her sons die. It's hard for us to grasp what a desperate situation this is. Because we have lots of social safety nets in our modern life. It's a lot easier for ladies to enter the workforce and to provide for themselves today than it is here. This is absolute economic devastation. To say nothing of losing all of your family. This is where Naomi is. Here in verse 5, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is a period of a decade that has passed. We've all summed it up in a nice tight five verses. The remaining chapter is going to, oh, is going to unfold over the course of a year. And we can imagine the absolute devastation that Naomi is feeling 
and might begin to have some questions about this almighty God that's supposed to be watching over her and her people. Because here she has been left barren. But we turn now to verse 6 and continues. So after these 10 years, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to the return to the land of Judah. Here, Ruth is seeing the provision of the Lord. Even though things have been terrible in her family, he is still providing and has begun the harvest. So she's on her way back with her two daughters-in-law. But now Naomi cares about her daughters-in-law a lot. And she knows she's not going to be able to provide for them. So she gives them a three-point argument for why they should return to their land. We pick this up in verse 8, this conversation on the road. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. A lot of commentators point out still that there is still faith here in Naomi, and that she is calling on the Lord, Yahweh, to bless her daughters-in-law. Even though she has not been feeling like a whole lot of blessing has been going on, she is still trusting that the Lord is the one who's going to bless her daughters-in-law. They also point out that there is a, an interesting phrase in that go and, and return each of you to your mother's house. Normally the expectation would be to your father's house. This is a reference to the fact that she wants them to be married again, that the mother would be very involved in helping prepare them for marriage. And she figures that they're going to have a much higher chance of being married in their own country than heading into a foreign land where they themselves are not allowed into the temple of worship there. So she says, go back and be married. And then they respond in verse 10. Both of them say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi responds And says, turn back, my daughters. Note the tenderness there. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Here she's saying, Don't stay with me. I'm too old to be married, much less to produce sons. And even if I could, what are you going to do? Wait around for them? You can also begin to hear in the Hebrew, the commentaries point out, there is beginning to see some of the the hurt coming out of Naomi. She doesn't use the term womb here. She uses the term guts. Is there anything else in my gut to produce a child for you. She doesn't have it. She's looking into this and saying, there's nothing that I can provide for you. So there's no reason to stay with me. And then she continues 
in verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Lord's after me. Why would you want to stay with me? And then verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah turns and goes back. And we can turn and look into this and say, oh, that Orpah. But Orpah's making the logical choice. There's nothing that Naomi can provide for her. We're going to go into a foreign land where they're not liked. She needs to provide. She she wants to be married. She needs economic care. Naomi's not going to be able to provide that for her. So she makes the sensible decision and turns around and goes back to her country. So Naomi tries to pick up on this and tries to persuade Ruth to follow after her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. We'll get back to that. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. The Hebrew there is abandon you or to return from following you. Ruth is not going to follow after Orpah. Now, there has been some consternation over Naomi's terrible evangelism skills and that she is sending them back to their gods and is, inter- and is encouraging Ruth to go back and worship something else other than Yahweh. And this is where we find the absolute realism of the Bible. Ruth has blessed her daughters-in-law in the name of Yahweh and telling them to go and make God provide for you in this other land. But yet we see this inconsistency in our own theology and in her own theology of saying, go back and be provided for by these other gods. Commentaries explain that at this time, people thought that gods ruled over particular cities, kind of like a, like a patron god for these things, and they were the ones that you would worship. Other gods existed, but you did best to speak to your local deity to help out with whatever your crops are, your problems that you had. And she is sending them to go and do that. Perhaps this does point to Naomi's theology. And during the time of the judges, as commentaries explain, this would not be beyond the pale for her to have adopted some sort of pantheism as she's gone along. The time of the judges was a very theologically confusing time, and it's possible she's picked up on some of that. But Ruth is different. Ruth is different. She picks up here in the second half of verse 16, and she promises, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And most critically, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a beautiful promise that she's made to Naomi. But note also, and I didn't realize this until a commentator pointed it out. This is a very pessimistic promise. Ruth is not saying, where you prosper, I will prosper. Where you gain land, I'll have land. No. Where you lodge, I will lodge, and where you die, so will I. 
Ruth is not expecting prosperity in this. She is not a glass half full kind of person. She's a realist. She recognizes she is going not towards economic prosperity. She has nothing to gain from being with Naomi other than being dedicated to the one that she loves. That's love. That's chesed love. That's what we're going to see explicated through the rest of this book. There's nothing to gain for Ruth here. She doesn't know what the rest of the story is going to be like. But she's going to follow Naomi anyway. And then we get to verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She's like, okay, coming with me. This is the beginning of God's promises being fulfilled. But it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. But in fact, as we'll see here in point number two, is that trials are the servants of God. Here, these trials have sent Naomi out of the land and now has attached Ruth to her. And nobody really knows why at this point. She's just lost her her sons, her husband, everything. And now it comes back to Bethlehem with this foreigner. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We can hardly blame Naomi for this. For those of us that would say, it's like, well, you should be trusting in the sovereignty of God. It's like, would we have done a whole lot better? Have almost all of your family dead and have no economic future, no way to provide for yourself, so now you're just waiting to die? Lose your family's inheritance on that land? I would be bitter. I shouldn't be. But I'll be honest, I would. But even here, this has not stopped God's promise. And this trial is still the servant of of God. But Naomi doesn't see the Lord is working with her. As commentators had pointed out, she is saying, the Lord has brought me back empty and Ruth is standing right there. This is God's provision for her. She doesn't see it yet. And the Lord is working in their lives. Look, as we see in verse 22, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, emphasizing that. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, how providential is that? Just in time for harvest, the Lord has brought them back to Bethlehem. This is what has been done in Naomi's life. But Naomi doesn't see that the Lord is taking care of her. 
oftentimes we don't see it either. We tend to look at the problems that we have directly in front of us, and a lot of us are dealing with problems less than he, than Ruth or than Naomi has been dealing with. But yet the Lord is still working in us and beyond. Now, it's important to point out that even though that the Lord is working through our problems, and even though the Lord has provided for us in salvation. One of the things that we want to do, and this is a wonderful commentary by a a lady named uh, Mary Hannah. She said something interesting, which I think is a good thing for us to take away from this. Says the narrator nowhere minimizes Naomi's suffering or trivializes her grief. The narrator does not portray Obed's birth, for example, as somehow expunging any lingering heartache for Naomi related to losing her husband and her two sons. And neither should we. This does not look at Naomi's grief as saying, oh, well, this is something, if only you could see what God is doing, you wouldn't be sad. It's sad losing your family. It's a devastating part of the sin that's in our world. And it's appropriate to grieve those things. And we don't want to look at other people's sufferings and minimize those things and saying, well, it's all part of God's plan. It may be, and it is. The Lord is working through that. But what they need is to hear that you understand they're grieving, and this is sad, and we weep with those who weep. We should also be careful, and she continues, when we look at this story. Here, Naomi, at the end of the story, if you haven't read it already, is that she is restored at the end. She has a future and a grandson. But she continues, the relevant point is not what God does for Naomi, he will do for you in the here and now. But rather, who God is for Naomi, he will be for you. And who God is is a wonderfully faithful God. A God who saw us as sinners, devastated by our own moral decay, and sent his son for us to lodge where we would lodge, to make us into his people, to die the death that we should have died, and to be buried. But Christ can say more, and that he will, he rose again, and will one day raise us again from the dead. This is the beautiful picture that we do have in Christ. And we, like Naomi, can sometimes miss the gift that's standing right in front of us. We can look at the salvation that we have in Christ and say, it's like, well, I'm empty, because I don't have this. We can look to Christ and not say, it's like, well, this is a sure cure to never grieve anymore, but to still have joy even within that grief. We don't grieve as those that have no hope because we do have hope. We just sang about it a few minutes ago. That one day griefs and fears will be gone. That's the hope that we live for. That's the hope that Christ has provided for us critically through Ruth. And how all of the Lord, how the Lord has brought all this about 
and how we can learn from it today, I hope to unfold over the next three weeks for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you have provided for us. That even during trials and hardships, you are there. And I pray that you would remind us of that every day. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.